in our front yard, we have four apple trees. And this year, I got two apples from our first tree after three years of work. And, um, but one of the trees is different than the others because, and at first I was like, what is the deal? You guys know, come fall, come winter, and come spring, when the wind starts blowing, anything that's not tied down starts blowing all over the place. And of our four apple trees, three of them have always been able to handle it just fine. From the very first year, they can handle a wind and they don't need any staking. But one of the trees is bigger than the rest of them, but if it's not staked really, really well, it will turn over and fall and become almost vertical. It'll still be like be alive. And I, I, it took some time until I re- figured out what had happened. I had to talk to the breeders of the apple tree and say, hey, what's the deal? And they said, oh, it's the variety of root that we grafted that tree onto. You see, your other trees have uh, the kind of root stock that produces really vigorous and really strong root systems from the very first, that very first year. But this other one will never develop very good roots. It's, it's the biggest of our trees. It actually didn't produce any apples this year. I expected it to because it's supposed to. But it didn't produce any apples this year. But it is the kind of tree that will always need staking because it's never going to have big, good, strong roots. And so whenever the wind blows, which is happening this week, I have to make sure that the stakes are new stakes, that they're put in the ground correctly, that the ropes are tied down really well, or else the tree will get blown over just about horizontal, and eventually it'll work its way loose and kill the tree. And I was thinking of that tree and those trees because 2020 is the kind of year with high winds for all of us where we're all like juggling uncertainty, bills, diagnosis, relationship problems, the kinds of things that you could use the metaphor, it's a high wind year. It's a year where everything seems to be blowing at one time and it feels like anything and everything in our lives that are not tied down gets blown away and sometimes the things that are tied down get pulled up. This is the kind of year just where it seems like chaos is all around us, personal lives, culturally, in our country, in the world. And so this is a, a kind of year where we are going, what kind of roots do I have and what kind of roots are going to get me through this? What, what is it that's going to help me get through this kind of year with this uncertainty, with this bill, with this diagnosis, with this despair and depression, with these relationship difficulties? What's going to get me through this? So here we come on October 18, 2020. Going, what, what kind of roots does God want me to have to get me through this? What kind of foundation is going to be able to hold for us in this kind of year? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 laying a foundation and returning to it and expanding on it and saying, guys, this is so important and so critical. It's so easy for us to jump to Ephesians 4 through 6 that talks about marriage and relationships. And uh, it talks about uh, how we live in the world and how we live with each other. It talks about spiritual warfare and all of those kind of things. But if we jump to Ephesians chapters 4 to 6 that talk about practice, I use that in quotation marks, then we end up missing the kind of roots and foundation that's necessary for spiritual warfare for marriage, for raising children, for working in jobs, for the kind of relationships that we have in the church. Ephesians 1-3 through lays this foundation and Paul just kind of like, it's like every 
every verse, he starts sending out a new shoot, a new root, a new, a new piece of the foundation we have to have. And so that's what I want to show you today. So what kind of a foundation can get us through? What kind of roots do we need in the gospel to get us through a kind of tumultuous year, a tumultuous life? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16 today. Paul has just said, I, I want you to, to know these things. I'm praying for these things. I want you to remember these things. Christ is our peace. And this is where he picks up in verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new human, in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, I ask that you help us send out shoots, send out, send out roots, send, lay a good foundation for the life that you call us, for the marriages that you called us to, to the friendships that you called us to, to the jobs, to the battles you called us to. Pray these things in Jesus' name. This passage is calling us to lean in to the peace that you have. Lean in to the peace that you have. And what I want to show you here today is three things, three ways to lean into this peace. Three ways to lean into the peace that Jesus has won for us. Three things to lean into. Verse 14 calls us and tells us God's promises are for you in Christ. God's promises are for you in Christ. He's going, to, he's going to use this verse 14 to say, I've said some of this stuff, but you guys don't really know. You need a better foundation in your lives for this. And so here's what he says in verse 14. For he himself, he's like emphasizing, you can just say, for he is our peace, but he like doubles it up and says it twice. For he, Jesus Christ, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about? He says he, has, he, is, he himself is our peace. That's this word for harmony, for wholeness. Not just the absence of hostilities, but a world that is made right. Relationships that are not just getting along and walking past each other and not fighting, but actually true heart-to-heart relationship knit together. He himself is our peace. And he says, he has made the two one. Joe, what does he say? What does that mean? Who has made us both one? What's he talking about? Paul is writing to Gentile believers in a city in Turkey, Ephesus. And he's saying, now he has made Jews and Gentiles one. There is no longer a promised people of God, a blessed people of God. There's no longer the insider. He's saying he has made Jew and Gentile, the promised people of God and the those on the outside looking in. He has made the two of them one. And so there, there is no longer a special class of believer who has the promises of God and who has hopes by right of his birth, by right of what his family has done, by his own law keeping. He has made the two one, these two groups. God, he has He's using this to tell them God's promises are now for you in Christ. There is nothing that keeps you separate from that. It's, it won't be because your birth or because you have the wrong birth. It won't be because you have kept the law or because you've never kept the law. It's not going to be because God's promises were for you and your family, but 
or because or not for you because it wasn't for you and your family. God through Paul is telling us that there is God is taking insiders and outsiders and making peace and saying God's promises are for both of you. God is taking law keepers and he's taking law breakers and he's saying the promises of God are now for you. He is taking people who have the promises and people who have no promises and saying now these are for you. God, he is saying he's taking God's people and those that are not God's people and saying God's promises are for you. He, verses 11 through 13, kind of points this out. He's taking people who have a future and people who have no future and saying God's promises are for you. Those who have no hope and those who have hope, hey, God's promises are for you. Those who walk in the world with God and those who have lived their whole lives walking in the world without God now have the promises of God these are for you. So this is not just, hey, the, there's now no longer any races in the world. He's actually pointing to the promises of God now extend to every people, tribe, and tongue in the world. It, it involves every individual. And so no matter where you've been or the things that you've done or the things that have been done to you, the memories that you have, the obedience you've never been able to give, God's promises are for you in Christ. God's promises are for you in Christ. No matter what the road ahead holds for you, there are those that are in Christ. He has made the two one, and so all of God's promises are now for you. Uh, after college, well, when I was in seminary the first time, I uh, spent uh, three weeks one summer working in Canada and uh, doing a camp. And then on our way home, we decided to spend the day in Toronto. And I knew that the U20 World Cup, that means the men under the age of 20 World Cup was happening in Canada that month and that the final was that day in Toronto. And so we were in Toronto and we bump into a server at a restaurant who says, somebody just gave me tickets. And so we gave him money and got the tickets. The game had started. We jumped in the first cab I'd ever ridden in, jumped in a cab in Toronto, found our way to the stadium, get there, found out we were like 10 rows back. Some of those players have gone on to play for the biggest teams in the world since then. But I was so excited to get there that day. We go and we get to the seat behind the bench. We slide in and everybody up and down the road looks at us like, you are not the guy that's been sitting there this tournament. Like you, uh, I was there with a friend and they were like, you guys aren't the right ones. These are like season ticket type things. You, we, we paid for these for the tournament and here you show up halfway through the final match of the tournament at the very end and act like you own this seat. Now, I've been to games before and I sat in the wrong seat on accident. Somebody comes and corrects you and you have to go back and sit in the nosebleed section. But in this instance, nobody else knew it, but I had the right ticket. This was my seat now. These were our seats. We belong in this place, even though we came in after at halftime, even though we came in far after the tournament had started, far after the game had started. This was my seat now and nobody could move me from it. I'm reminded of that because that's what the point in this passage is. Is it doesn't matter if you came in late. God's promises are for you. It doesn't matter if you were born in Turkey to a Gentile family and you've never kept the law. It doesn't matter what's in your history. God's promises are now for you. Nobody can take it away. Even if they've been sitting there the whole game or the whole tournament. This is for you. So Paul is telling you and I, God's promises are for you in Christ. And you don't realize how much this is for you. Paul keeps echoing these kinds of things over and over and over in Ephesians 1 through 3 because he's like, guys, we do not realize the extent to which God's promises are for us in Christ. We go through our lives 
thinking that God and hoping that God might mean good for us, but we don't we don't cling to that when things get hard. In this passage, Paul, God using Paul, says, My, my promises are for you. My promises are for you. You're now an insider. You're now an insider. This is for you. And so the, the task, the the task for you and I is to begin to remind ourselves daily. God's promises are for me in Christ. God's promises are for me in Christ. Our job is to be encouraging one another to encourage our children, our spouses, our friends, our neighbors who are believers that if we are in Christ, then God's promises are for us. These belong to us and nobody can take them away. No situation, no, no wins from the 2020 are going to stop God's promises being for us. No despair or depression that cripples our soul and cripples our mind is going to be able to remove God's promises for us. The second thing from this to lean into is that you have access to God in Christ. You have access to God in Christ. Paul is going to use this at the end of verse 14 and 15 to tell us, you guys, you kind of know this, but we, it just hasn't sunk in deeply enough. It's just not sunk in deeply enough. End of verse 14, he says, He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse, there at the end of verse 14, he's saying, He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He uses this kind of word, he destroyed it. Whatever this wall of hostility is, Jesus, using his body, absolutely obliterated. That wall that divided the people is gone. That, is, that wall that divided Gentiles and Jews, you see, one writer, the way one writer puts it, is that in the Old Testament law, the people who, through faith in God, and faith in God's promises, were expressing that, they found that Outsiders, Gentiles, were a threat to their obedience and to God's promises being for them. And so the the Jewish people began in their minds to separate themselves more and more from the nations around them because they saw them as a threat to their own obedience, to their own holiness. And God is using the law in them and pointing out that they alone cannot use separation from the people to separate them to God, to make them holy. But they they began to put up in their minds and in their lives these divides between Jew and Gentile because you are now a threat to my obedience to God's promises being for me. And this passage says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was actually a literal wall around the temple that divided the court of the Gentiles where obedient Gentiles could go and they could worship and where the Jews could go. And there was a sign on the wall that said, if a Gentile passes through this gate, they are taking their life into their own hands. They will be responsible for their own death if they do this. That may have been in Paul's mind in this moment. It is a literal example of this wall that Paul is describing here. And this verse 14 says, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility the wall that separated the people, the wall that stood in between them and holiness, between them and God's promises, is then gone, is now gone. This whole whole idea, it points us to the fact that it is access to God in Christ 
that is now available to both Jew and Gentile. It is now available to both Jew and Gentile. We can have it in our mind, oh, okay, so the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles is now gone. But the, the, the thing that Paul's trying to get us to understand is to put deep roots into is the fact that we have access to God in Christ. It's not just, hey, everybody theoretically does, but I personally have access to God in Christ. And so when my prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling or I can't even pray because I am so burdened, this passage calls us to remember that Jesus himself has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility that has kept us from God's people and that has kept us from God. We have access to God in Christ. One, the way one writer describes the story of the Bible is that the story of the Bible starts wide with humanity in the garden with a task to fill the earth and to subdue it. It starts out with this wide focus and then it narrows to a family, Abraham, and to his family. And then the rest of the Bible is it, it is staying in that family line, focused on the people of Israel until it gets to Christ, and then it goes wide to the world again. So that it wasn't just the people of the family who had access to God, it's everybody who comes through Christ and has access to God. This, this passage says that Jesus, by his body, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, have access to God in Christ. The application of this is that we do not realize the full extent to which God listens to us. We do not realize the full extent to which God bends His ear and delights to see us moment after moment, day after day. We do not realize the extent to which there is an open welcome in the throne room of heaven for you and for me if we are in Christ. We don't realize the full extent of that. The task in here in Ephesians chapter 2 is to lean into that, reminding ourselves, God is happy to see me today. Even in my rage, even in my fear, even in my anxiety, even in my uncertainty, even in my doubt, if I am in Christ, then God has an open welcome and loves to hear from me. That is the task for you and I to begin to give one another encouragement and counsel Hey, you, if you are in Christ, you have great access. God loves to hear and see you. Can we become that kind of an encourager for one another? That, that kind of a champion in each other's life saying, this is what's true. Sure, we're going to talk about marriage advice and family advice, and we are going to talk about relationships, and we're going to talk about what it means to live as a Christian and what it means to live, live in, a, in this fallen world following Jesus but we're also going to remind ourselves and remind each other we have access to God in Christ. The third thing to lean into from this passage. The third thing to lean into from this passage is you are released from the law in Christ. You're released from the law in Christ. Verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. This is, this is his point. He's wanting to tell them, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in, in place of the two, so making peace, and me- might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He abolishes the law of commandments and ordinances, and the purpose of him doing that is so that he can create in himself one new man, reconciling us both, all of us, to God in one body through the cross. He is releasing us from the commandments that we have never kept. Sometimes it feels like 
how are we as New Testament believers supposed to relate to the law? And this, I think, gives us a clue. That the, the way that we relate to the law of God is by saying, yes, it is good, we should listen to it, we should follow it, and yet we don't. Who can save us? And this passage says that Jesus abolishes or releases, reconciles us to the law so that though we have never kept it, we are released from its curses. And then he gives us the purpose so that God can create a new humanity. A new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, promised and unpromised, making peace to reconcile them both to God. He's creating a new humanity. And he's using his own body. He's using his own body, bearing the curses that we should bear ourselves to reconcile us, not just to each other, because our greatest issue is not the difference between insider and outsider and Jew and Gentile, one race and another race. The, the issue is that all of us are in hostility to God. and Jesus reconciles all people, all the people who come to him through his body. He says through his cross. This whole path, these whole three verses are filled with in Christ, in his body, in Christ, in his body, trying to get us to focus our eyes, not just on, oh, we're forgiven, we're released, but to focus our eyes on Jesus is the person. Jesus is the one place where God's curses come down so that his blessings can come to us. And so the, the thing that Paul wants us to lean into is that we are released from the law in Christ. We can agree that it is good, but we're released from it. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of God is good. I have not kept it, but I am released from it because I am in Christ. And that means that the guilt that we so easily bear, so e the guilt we so easily give to each other, our children, to our spouses, to our friends, to other people. Hey, you haven't done enough. Why don't you do this? Why can't you go this way? We are released from the guilt and the shame that come from our law-breaking in Christ. And Paul wants us to realize the depth of that. We are released from the law. We are released from having to keep it so that God will be happy with us. We are released from it from knowing that we have it so that we can know we have a future. We are released and we can know we have been reconciled to God through the cross. The, the greatest way, the greatest issue that we are dealing with is not estrangement from other people, but our estrangement from God. And we have been reconciled to God through Jesus' body on the cross. And so this passage calls us to realize we don't realize the depth of that. We don't realize that we have been released from the law in Christ. And the difference that that's going to make in our relationships, in our marriages, in our church, in our community. We don't realize the, the, the difference that that's going to make in our own hearts. When... And so he's calling us all oh, lean in to know that you are released from the law in Christ. Lean in so that when you're giving advice to somebody, you're actually leaning with this. Leading with this, you are released from the law in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this passage says, lean into the peace that you have in Christ. But I'm reminded that even, even something like that, that I, that's like a comfort, can feel like a law. Oh, I should work harder to remind myself of these things. I should work harder 
to. I should Maybe I'll put it on the wall in my bedroom or on a card in the mirror or on my dashboard to try and remember. And even that kind of comfort can become a wall that crushes us. So where is the good news for us? The good news for us is in this line, in Christ, in His body, not in our own body. God's promises are for me in Christ, not because I worked harder to remember it. It's because Jesus, who did not deserve the curses of disobedience, bore the curse of disobedience for me. Jesus, who is God Himself with access in the throne room of heaven, was forsaken for me. And so it's not how much I can work at remembering it that gives me access. Jesus, it's I am in Christ. Jesus was never under the curse of the law and yet was hung on a tree as a curse for me and for you. So this passage frees us if we are in Christ. You say, Joe, how what you keep saying in Christ, how can I know that this is for me? How can I know that this gospel is for me? Not my birth, not what my parents have done, not what somebody did in my behalf. How can I know that this is for me? The story of the Bible in four parts. Is part one says that God made the world and he put Adam and Eve in it. And he made it very and he called it very good. And he gave Adam and Eve one rule and said, You must not eat from this tree. And it expressed God's authority and his relationship with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve said, No, we do not want you. We will not follow you. We will not live under your authority. We will live our own way. And so Adam and Eve sinned in disobedience. That's part two of the story that God promised. I'm sorry, God cast them out of the garden. Physical death and spiritual death were introduced into the world in that moment. Part three of the story is that instead of God leaving Adam and Eve that way and us that way, that Jesus came and lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die and was raised to new life so that in part four, we can respond in repentance and faith. With open hands saying, God, I agree. I have not lived under your authority. I am confessing my sin and I am turning to you as my King and my Lord. And I will trust you and follow you. And taking Jesus' obedience and Jesus' death in our place. The Bible calls that. That is the response that God wants from us. If you have questions about that, please grab me, young or old. So I want you to imagine with me what changes when we begin to live this way. Imagine what changes when the peace that we have and that we live with does not come from our situation, but it comes from the fact that God's promises are for us. Imagine the kind of, the kind of peace that we have, not because we are just naturally this way, not because we've worked at it, not because we've put enough money in the bank account, not because we've coursed, uh, I'm sorry, planned out our course well enough. Imagine what's different when we have a peace because we know God's promises are for me. He will never leave me or forsake me. Imagine what changes when we know our peace comes because we have access to God through Christ, not because I was sinless today or I sinned less or I put more distance in between whatever my signature sin is. Imagine what changes when we realize we're released from the law in Christ. Imagine the kind of empowerment that that makes in our lives when we know that our peace does not come from our own obedience, but from Jesus who obeyed and who died in our place. Imagine the peace that can come when we know we are released from the law. So the call of this is to lean in to the peace that we have in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that you give us this word. I thank you that Ephesians calls us to marinate in this treasure that we have of being in Christ. Help us to do that. Holy Spirit, come and remind us of of these truths over and over and over so that they sink deeply into our hearts as the roots and foundation of our lives. In Jesus' name.